You don't give an 18 year old $36,000. But at that same age, with that same level of income, which was zero, I would not have gotten approved for a car loan. I definitely wouldn't have got approved for a 30 year mortgage. We're saddling kids essentially yeah. with huge amounts of debt. This is the best case for relief and against relief, right? It's a paradoxically the same reason why the government is responsible is why some of the actions they're pondering don't do enough. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Brefford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, two announcements today. Uh, reminder that we have this new podcast in our network called the Daisy Crime Podcast. They just joined us and, you know, they'd been humming along without us as, you know, one of the top ranked podcasts in all of India. And what they do is they take the true crime format and they actually have, you know, they've adapted it for a an Indian audience and for Americans who are interested in global content. And there are just so many fascinating and frightening crimes in India, and they do such a wonderful job of telling those stories. So you know, check that out at the Desi Crime, that's D-E-S-I, Crime Podcast, wherever you get your shows. We also have our newsletter. So if you go to Substack, listen to this podcast, can subscribe for free. It's the Lost Debate newsletter, and we have stuff on student debt relief, which is what we're talking about today, and we're going to have uh, a history of Roe versus Wade and abortion politics in America, which we'll be dropping tomorrow. And with all that, Corey, what are we going to do today? Well, we got a big show today. President Biden could be poised to relieve hundreds of billions in student loan debt. We'll explain what's on the table there. Comedians under attack. Dave Chappelle was tackled while performing in L.A. Is this the start of a dangerous new era in stand-up comedy? Then we'll discuss how China's lockdowns could threaten the global economy and why a mental health startup isn't writing any more Adderall prescriptions. And finally, we'll touch on a quiet crisis in America, the sad state of mental health among teenagers. But first things first, an LG for Ohio primaries. J.D. Vance has emerged from the Republican field to face Tim Ryan in November's general election. But the first question is, Ravi, how much did former President Trump's endorsement have on pushing Vance over the top? Right. Well, I can I can point to the correlation, which is what we really know. And the correlation is extremely strong. And so we'll link to this in the show notes. But there was this, you know, this this website called uh, Real Clear Politics. And here is just the graph of the average of polls from the beginning of this race, essentially, till now. And what you see is Vance was really struggling throughout most of this race to the point where there were process stories being written just two months ago about how his campaign was dead in the water. There was polling release uh, Republican pollster Fabrizio, essentially saying that there was a true crisis going on in the Vance campaign. And that basically continues. He's in deep into third place until April 15th. And I've circled that here on this graph. What happened on April 15th? Well, Trump endorsed him on April 15th. And then you see his standing dramatically improve from that point forward. And so you have that, which is a very strong correlation, highly suggestive that he benefited from the endorsement and he overwhelmingly won late deciders. And so I think a lot of people maybe looked at that endorsement as the deciding point for them. And then the second is he received an insane amount of outside spending, largely coming from a venture capitalist, Peter Thiel. He also was the subject of a lot of outside spending against him as well, which we could talk about. Mm, and he also definitely benefits from the name recognition as well, because obviously Hillbilly Elegy is very well known. Um, but I definitely agree that the correlation is um, pretty apparent given the polling data. Well, Ohio has been trending red for a while now. I mean, Ohio voted twice for Obama, but they also voted twice for Trump. Uh, back in 2004, they were one of the deciding states like in an election. And now it seems as if they're not even really a battleground state anymore. Yeah, it used to be Ohio and Florida, right? Yeah. Those were the two battlegrounds. And honestly, we don't really 
emphasize those states anymore. I think, you know, the past few election cycles, Democrats have held out a lot of hopes and invested a lot of resources, especially in Florida, but they're trending away, right? And so some of this data is pretty stark. 2012, uh, you know, Obama won with 50.7% of the vote. 2016, though, Hillary Clinton only got 43% of the vote. So a huge drop uh, just in a short period of time. And then 2020, slight rebound. Democrats got 45.2% of the vote in that presidential cycle. So slightly increased in Ohio, but uh, over Hillary's performance, but not nearly enough to win the state. So there are huge gale force wins for Tim Ryan, who's the Democratic nominee, to win this state. And as David Axelrod talked about this week when he was you know, analyzing these results, he said Tim Ryan is almost a perfect candidate for Democrats um, trying to win back a state like Ohio in the sense that he's this Sherrod Brown populist. Sherrod Brown is the Democratic senator who seems to buck this trend. And he said, you know, he, Tim Ryan appeals to, you know, lunch bucket Democrats, but Axe said, I don't know if there are any lunch bucket Democrats left anymore. The, the party has largely lost those Mahoning, Youngstown type voters that Tim Ryan counts on. And so does that then imply to you that Vance has some good chances in the general election? I think he's a, the you know, overwhelming favorite in this race. I think uh, Tim Ryan gives Democrats the best chance they possibly could have of, you know, any of the conceivable candidates that they have. But it's still, he, he's going against such forces. The brand, the Democratic brand in the state is, is, is seriously struggling. And so if I were Ryan, I'd be thinking about, well, Vance didn't win a majority. It's a winner-take-all primary. Is there is there some kind of fissures within the Republican coalition that he could take advantage of? That's probably what his strategy will be. But this is going to be a populist bloodbath. You know, listeners should should listen to some of these speeches that both of these candidates have. I would recommend, you know, Google, you know, going on YouTube and looking up fentanyl on the border with Vance. That if you wanted to kill a bunch of, of MAGA voters in the middle of the heartland, uh, how better than, than to target them and their kids with this deadly fentanyl? And it's, I mean, the crazy thing, of course, is it's not just drug addicts who are affected by this, right? I mean, of course, most of our voters are not people who are suffering uh, from some addiction, but they know a lot of people who are, right? Their kids are affected by it. Uh, a lot of grandparents, man, who are taking care of grandkids that they weren't expecting to take care of because this fentanyl killed their children, right? And th those grandparents had to step up. So it, it's really a border crisis that has gone all over the country. It's not just the southern border states that are affected by it. It's everybody. And man, it does look intentional. Uh, it's like Joe Biden wants to punish the people who didn't vote for him and opening up the floodgates to the border is one way to do it. And listening to some of the things he said about that and then looking up January 6th floor speech with Tim Ryan. I want to thank the gentleman from New York and the other Republicans who are supporting this and thank them for their bipartisanship to the other 90% of our friends on the other side of the aisle. Holy cow. Incoherence. No idea what you're talking about. Ben Benghazi, you guys chased the former Secretary of State all over the country, spent millions of dollars. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank-and-file cop in the United States. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them. Those two speeches that they've given like, are just perfect examples of these are very populist, you know, red meat type politicians coming from the heartland of the country, and this is going to be an extremely fascinating clash. And 
I think Vance definitely is the odds on favorite, but it will certainly be from a messaging perspective, something really fascinating to watch. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens in that race. Last week, the White House signaled that action is imminent on permanent student loan relief as Biden announced that he expects to make the decision in the next couple of weeks. To get a sense of where things stand today, over 43 million Americans owe over $1.7 trillion of student loans. If you're wondering how much money $1.7 trillion is, just know that Australia's GDP is $300 billion less than that. So, Ravi, first of all, does Biden even have the authority to flat out give a blanket just forgiveness to all these loans and how much will that cost the taxpayers if he does well nobody really knows for sure if he has that authority this will eventually go to the supreme court people like elizabeth warren claim that he does in large part because the higher education act has a provision that's pretty vague that essentially says the executive branch can cancel student debt but everybody agrees that that provision wasn't written in a way that was intended to be this broad, where he could cancel all debt. It was really a provision that was meant to allow the executive branch to negotiate with people who are either in risk of default or in narrow cases, kind of on an individual basis. Now, one could argue, though, that the intent really doesn't matter. It's what the words in the statute say. And this will make it to the Supreme Court, but this Supreme Court, the vaccine mandate cases are a good example. They have been narrowing the ability of the government to take vague provisions and push through pretty sweeping changes. And my, I suspect that this Supreme Court would have issues with this, but you, we really don't know. There's this saying from Scalia that you can't uh, push a, an elephant through a mouse hole. And I think this Supreme Court really believes in restraining the executive's ability to do kind of stuff like this. But you know, the timing will be interesting. Would the Supreme Court want to step in and, and take away relief after it's already been granted to students? Definitely. And so there have been a lot of pushes from the progressive kind of wing of the Democratic Party to forgive as much as $50,000. But um, recently, Biden sp uh, spoke out saying that that's not what he's planning to do. Secondly, I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness. And uh, I'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. So I have to say personally, it really bugs me to hear this coming out of his mouth specifically, just because he has a really bad record on this. Essentially, he was one of the the primary architects in the 70s of a lot of the policies that got us into this mess in He's the first from place. Delaware, which is where a lot yes. of these lenders come from. Yeah. Right? I mean, he eliminated income restrictions and federal loans in 1978 or voted to. Um, he wrote one of the pieces of legislation that blocked students from the ability to get bankruptcy protection. He supported in 2005 another bankruptcy bill that removed protections for students. And then on the campaign trail said that forgiveness was unrealistic. So it kind of just makes me personally cringe because, you know, you you gain political points back in the day for being for this. And then it turns out to be a mess. And now you're gaining political points for being against it. Just the inconsistency bugs me. Although I have to say, even though on principle, I don't like the idea of forgiving loans and I just don't think it sets a good precedent. This system is so messed up that like I could be convinced that like these these young people are owed something by the government that put them in this situation. Yeah, the inconsistency on Biden is a little infuriating, but also you have to think about the fact that it's an inconsistent system. I mean, his party has changed. Politics has changed a lot since the 1970s. Well, uh, but so he also changed a lot since the campaign trail and just this issue like 
that's yeah yeah well that's what public opinion does to you it changes you i mean obama didn't support same-sex marriages and then, then he did so i mean that just that just happens um a lot of there's been a conservative pushback to this you know a lot of people are saying well why should taxpayers foot the bill for these students the vast majority of americans don't own any don't owe any student loan debt uh, the vast majority of americans didn't even go to college so there's this notion of why should americans have to pay for student loan debt when the vast majority of them don't have student loan debt I would also point out that the vast majority of Americans don't sit on the board of a bank that got a bailout during the Great Recession. Yeah, We bailed those banks out and many other companies out because we claimed that they were too big to fail. According to Deborah J. Lucas, MIT Sloan Distinguished Professor of Finance, the federal government spent about $498 billion on bailouts. And that's not counting basically like it was more than that, but a lot of those companies did pay stuff back. So that's like money that they didn't get back. $498 billion is what we spent on those bailouts because those places were too big to fail. Those banks and those companies were too big to fail. So what if we just did a revolutionary idea and said that Americans who sought out college degrees and are the backbone of the middle class, what if we just said they were too big to fail? What if what if we just decided that, that, that we were going to spend our money on, you know, the American working class instead of just, you know, billionaires. Right. And, and to put a price on it, if, if Biden cancels $10,000 uh, in student loan debt, do, you know, there are, there are details that need to be worked out. Are there income caps? Are, is he only canceling undergraduate debt? But, you know, let's just say it's $10,000. That would be around $321 billion. So it would be less than what you're less. talking about from the yeah. banks. Now, I'm going to lay out the case for canceling debt. And I think, Ricky, you're going to come in on the back end, and then we'll talk about where we come out on this. And, and we've written this in the newsletter if people want to check that out. But there are a couple of reasons why I think Biden wants to do this. And I'll start with the practical part of this, which is that it's good politics for him. He has seen his support dropping precipitously amongst the youngest voters in this country. And those are the voters he had the widest margins with in 2020. And he started his term with 60% approval and has seen his approval be with 18 to 34-year-olds drop somewhere between 13 and 24 points. And these are voters who pretty significantly support some kind of action here. 64% of them support a moratorium. 53% support either canceling all debt or up to $50,000. And that number goes up the lower you go in what you cancel there. So the politics is good here. You know, I'm sure as Ricky will mention, there is a good counter to this. Uh, but the politics, especially when you're in your stagnant and you're dropping in, in some ways, you want to mix things up and, and show that you're doing something, especially with people you count on. The other point here is that debt is crippling a generation. You know, more students owe more debt than ever before. The amount of households with debt has tripled from 8% in 1989 to 21% in 2021, while the quantity of the debt owed by those households has increased nearly fourfold in a roughly comparable period of time. So, you know, people are taking on more debt and more of them are taking on more debt. These are people who are going to struggle to make major life decisions that we kind of want them to make as a society, whether it's buying a house, launching a business, taking a risk, getting married, having children, like this stops them all. Um, this at least slows them down from, from taking those decisions. And they, it also pushes them into careers that they're less passionate about, taking less risks in general. This also falls per disproportionately on some of the most vulnerable. Black borrowers owe 50% more than whites and are twice as likely to default. Uh, and so add on top of that, that the government created this crisis in many ways, as you were talking about with Biden. You know, Jordan Weissman recently said government is acting like a subprime lender. They basically have been juicing the system. They haven't put in putting any checks on the people they give this to or on the institutions that the money goes to. So there's a lot of reasons why they should consider this. 
And then just to lay out a lot of the arguments against it, um, obviously we already spoke about the concerns that it exceeds executive authority on Biden's part. There's also concerns that it could worsen inflation right now by like loosening up all this cash for people to start spending. And then there's even more money chasing the same amount of goods. There's the concern about saddling the working class with that so-called educated elites debt, which even the income cap policies, which I do think are pretty logical, don't take into account how old someone is. So if somebody is 22 and making less than a certain threshold, that doesn't look at their income potential over time. There's also the the biggest issue for me, which is that it doesn't address any of the underlying issues. It creates an incentive for more people to take out loans because maybe one day mm-hmm. they'll get another level of forgiveness. And yep. so that's my biggest problem is like we clearly have a governmental issue here and how this is working. And this doesn't fix it. This just pauses it and then restarts it. And I would argue that like in large part, this system is responsible for the huge increase of tuition because, you know, when everyone can afford to go to college and air quotes, then colleges can just up and up and up tuition. And like one study found that the average tuition increase associated with the expansion of student loans is 60 cents to a dollar, which essentially means that more federal aid enables college students to or colleges to raise tuition in the end. And it just is a ever feeding cycle. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of student loan debt, so I'm not going to pretend like I don't have a stake in this fight, but a good bit of my student loan debt is private, so this doesn't really affect me. Uh, But there's some in federal. My thing is this. When I was 18 years old, I was approved for a $36,000 loan to go to art school. And that was a bad investment on that bank's part. You know, I mean, <laughs> just to be honest, they, you don't give an 18 year old thirty six thousand dollars with the you know. And of course, yeah, I knew I was supposed to pay it back. But at that same age, with that same level of income, which was zero <laughs> with a credit score that did not exist yet, I would not have gotten approved. I would not have gotten approved for uh, a car loan. Uh, for any for any amount, I definitely wouldn't have got approved for a 30 year mortgage for for any amount. Right. So my thing is, you know, we're saddling kids essentially yeah. with huge amounts of debt and we're not considering the degree they're getting. We're not considering anything. I mean, yeah, a lot of them have to have co- co-signers, but we're still not really considering their ability to be able to pay this back. That seems to me to be a bad decision on the government's part mm-hmm. and the government should fix its own mistake. That's what I think. And they also make it really hard to discharge that debt in yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no bankruptcy. So, and, that was, and like you said, that Biden was thanks, behind Biden. that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the best case for relief and against relief, right? It's yeah. like, it's, the, it's, it's a paradoxically the same reason why the government is responsible is why some of the actions they're pondering don't do enough. Yeah. And yeah. so where, where I come out, and I suspect based on what you're saying, Ricky you, and, and Corey, you guys might agree, is that if they're going to do this, and there's a lot of reasons to do it, target it in a way that fixes the system. Yes. And, and yeah. who knows whether they have the authority to do this properly, so they might have to work with Congress, Congress which Lord yeah. knows doesn't want to do anything. But you know, can you target this, for instance, to professions that we need moving forward? Like, and, you know, for me, I would, there's a doctor shortage, there's a nursing shortage, there's a teacher shortage. Can we, in a, in a proactive way, signal that we'll continue to forgive debt, but only to institutions that perform well, yep. and only to people who are going to go into those professions, which also gets at, are you a good investment or not? Those are good investments for society for a public policy reason, but also financially, because we know that they get jobs that they'll be employable, you know, as opposed to like a, a sociology PhD or something, right? Like yeah. we have no idea what that job market's going to look like, but we do know what the teacher job market's going to look like. Yeah, not to mention that colleges are 
able to create these increasingly obscure fields of study because yeah. there's people aren't coming to the table with their own money. They're coming to the table as 17 year olds that aren't even really thinking through the entire process because right. they're 17. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they're not, they're not thinking in the long-term career pathway. I mean, I think it's just symptomatic of the fact that we, we as a culture are looking at college degrees as a necessity when in fact, that's not necessarily the case. And I think that we're clearly seeing the consequences of that. Yeah. Narrow the scope right professions institutions right and then you know there's the whole other part of this is the politics right let's use the prism of vance versus tim ryan for a second you know tim ryan is going to make the argument that we just made is crippling a generation he's going to speak to young people etc vance is going to come back and say the top fifth holds three dollars for every one dollar in debt from that the bottom fifth has in student loan debt and he's going to be like look this is just the democratic party of old transferring wealth from the you know the lower income blue collar workers to the very wealthy in society they're bailing out law firm ivy league law firm you know associates who make hundreds of thousand dollars and live in blue cities and you you know small business owner or unemployed or service worker you're the one footing that bill now biden has signaled he's going to do some things to to try to put some guardrails around it so it doesn't go to the very wealthy but you could see the populist attack on this yeah yeah so i guess i don't need to get my phd in sociology <laughs> no offense to them but they should pay somebody else should pay for that i don't think the government should be paying for that well i agree <laughs> uh first chris rock now dave chappelle being a comedian is starting to look like the most dangerous job in america chappelle was performing at the hollywood bowl this week when he was suddenly rushed and tackled by an audience member uh ricky me and you have been following this story since it since it first broke what was your initial reaction to this um, well, so to give some context to this attack, he was attacked on stage in L.A. by Isaiah Lee, who or the suspect is Isaiah Lee. He's 23 years old. It appears that his home address links up to a homeless shelter. So that's definitely a factor here. He charged him with a replica gun that had a knife inside it that discharged if it was like, I guess, shot. And it's unclear what the motivation is, but this came right after Chappelle made a comment about how he needs increased security because of the jokes that he's made about transgender people. This, to me, if this is a political motive, which I'm not going to ascribe to him, if it is, this is the logical conclusion to the speech is equivalent to violence ideology that's kind of flying around because if you truly believe that and you believe that offensive jokes about transgender people or about whatever group or issue that you're concerned about is tantamount to violence and this is a perfectly acceptable form of self-defense and i think this is a demonstration of the fact that that's just not sustainable for society words can't wound you but violence literally can and i think that seeing this kind of siege on comedians recently is really concerning because these are the people that are supposed to be able to touch the third rail and you're allowed to criticize them as much as you want but this is really scary to me. Well, words can lead to someone wounding someone. I, I do believe there's a such thing as hate speech and violent speech that could lead a group of people to do violent acts, you know, Charlottesville, January 6th, stuff like that. But I do totally agree that when it comes to most comedians and the things that they're saying, uh, they, they have the free speech right to say what they want to say. I've done stand up before. And so I definitely, definitely think that this attack on stand up and attack on comedians is, is a horrible trend that we're seeing right now in society. Yeah. And I would apply that standard to people who've been talking about Chappelle right now. They're there's a possibility at least that their words led to this violence. Who knows? We don't have enough information yet. Now, are they going to admit they committed violence against Dave Chappelle? I don't actually think their words were violence against Dave Chappelle, but I think their standard would imply that, right? You know, and to me, like, this is why it gets muddy. Like, my standard is, are your words, like, predictably going to lead somebody to take a violent act? Mm -hmm. If somebody does something that you can't predict, yeah. to me, then I'm like, 
I'm sorry, like that's terrible. And I would like caution them after the fact and, and repudiate them after the fact, which I'm, I hope people who've had a lot of strong words to say about Dave Chappelle will step in here and be like, no matter what I like disagree with in him, like, let me signal to all my people that, that violence is just not okay. You know, I would hope that they're doing that. I know you've been following it, so I'm not sure what the chatter looks yeah, like. Yeah, a few people are saying that, but then there has been this, well, what happened was after this attack happened, Dave Chappelle tried to continue some of his set, and he did say as a joke, he was like, oh, that must have been a trans man. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty bad joke to make at that time, but some I've saw some people on Twitter basically saying that, well, that joke within itself is going to lead to more people wanting to be violent towards trans people because you're blaming them for it attacking. You don't even have any proof whether or not they're responsible for it. Right. Even though it was a joke, nonetheless, you know, I, I could see that connection being made. Yeah, so it's kind of an extremely muddy situation. You know, I, I think like, you know, I saw the, the comments the brother made, um, which we don't have to go through. There's a lot of speculation happening about the motives. And I think for me, it's like this This feels like societal breakdown, you know, like, yeah. like this just feels a little different. And this is two of our most prominent comedians who have been attacked on stage uh, in a short period of time. Yeah. And I would just I just want everybody to slow down and just simmer down on this and say, look, like, let's keep it at words. You know, that's yeah. that's just yeah. my simple ask of everybody here. Well, what I think is we need a solution for this. And I've come up with a little solution. I just oh. want to show you guys real <laughs> quick. I came up with a little solution. So basically, people are, you know, first Chris Rock, now Dave Chappelle. We need something to protect comedians. We need something to protect free speech. So I want to introduce to you all. This is the the free speech box. I'm going to show it to my host. <laughs> This is the free speech box. So basically, is that what, Schultz? this is Andrew Schultz. He's he's a pretty controversial comedian. I would say more controversial than Chappelle. I like him a lot, but he, he hits that third rail pretty often. So we need to be able to protect them. This is a glass box that the comedians will be in on stage. It's bulletproof. If people throw tomatoes at it, the juice will run right down. It will it will not stain self-cleaning. It's like the Pope, yeah, like like the the pope, pope. box. Yeah, 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 remember the Pope box from the 80s? Yeah. This is like the Pope box, except <laughs> it's stationary. And, you know, they'll be able to do their jokes and, you know, they won't be slapped or attacked or tackled. And um, I just think that, you know, if, if anybody can get me on Shark Tank to, to really, you know, pitch this properly, <laughs> uh, I would love that. But the free speech box, guys, this is this is the future of stand up. Well, there's our solution. That's our that's our solution. And and the patents there are are owned by Corey Bradford. Well, Chinese officials are trying to avoid a citywide lockdown in Beijing, hoping to avoid what's happening in Shanghai as the country reckons with what is easily its worst ever outbreak of COVID-19. After 2 years of successfully keeping the pandemic under control, China is struggling as it never has before. That could have major consequences for China's economy and therefore the global economy as a whole. Uh Ravi, how were should we be about all of this? I would be, I would say extremely worried. You know, if you remember during the last recession, China in many ways led the recovery yeah. because of some of their spending and just because of their ability to turn the switch of growth on, you know, in, in, in a moment's notice. And there are three things going on simultaneously here that should really concern us. One is the COVID-19 lockdowns, which we'll start with. The second is the ongoing pressure from this this deleveraging that they're doing and and what we mean by deleveraging is the China's reducing debt uh in their you know there's this co-mingling with the private and public sector there they're reducing debt with the goal of reducing the overall risk in their system if you've read any stories about this company called Evergrande like this big property company uh that's at work there and they're getting more urgent about that um and that that deleveraging has effects on growth right because it's it's like 
a kind of you know analogous to what's happening with our Fed here is like the the more expensive it gets to borrow, the less borrowing that's happening, the less companies get started, the less goods get produced, et cetera. So that's an issue. And then you have all this war related uh, collateral damage from their alliance with Russia, right? Yeah, Which is yeah. causing them all sorts of issues too. So those three things are happening simultaneously, but starting with COVID, right now there are full or partial lockdowns in at least 27 cities. These restrictions are affecting up to 180 million people. And it's particularly problematic for the elderly. Only half of Chinese age 80 and older are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. It seems like they've gone in the opposite order of a lot of other countries and in, in, in not vaccinating the elderly. I have so many questions about this, but Ricky, I know you've been, you have been a skeptic of extreme measures mm. uh, against COVID-19. This seems like uh, about as extreme as it gets. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a demonstration of what happens when you try to sustain strict zero policy, zero COVID policies, and then you start to let up, then there's inevitably going to be an explosion. And I think that this conversation is really important to like bring the humanitarian aspect in because people are living under really repressive circumstances right now. Um, like COVID workers are killing people's pets in the street. There are these really compelling videos of people like in skyscrapers uh, banging on pots and like screaming for freedom because they're literally not allowed to leave their homes. Wow. There are huge problems with just the repression of freedom in China right now. And then there's also the economic side to that too, which is that a lot of uh, workers in factories in China are migrant workers that come to cities from other areas and that's essentially completely slowed. And so there's huge supply chain issues as well as a result of these lockdowns. Yeah, I actually have a, a high school teacher who went to teach English in China and uh, he has somehow still has access to Facebook. And for the last seven weeks, I mean, not allowed to go outside at all, a complete and total lockdown. Well, I think this is a big indictment on, there's this sense out there, I think people co-mingle China and Singapore and say, oh, like these are the competent countries, the US can't get anything done. I wish I lived in a country like that. Mm -hmm. This is a reminder that this country is, you know, not only repressive, as you said, but in some ways extremely incompetent and that mm -hmm. there's an overlap you know, there's some kind of nexus of freedom and competence, right? Like, mm -hmm. like Singapore is the example of like, they've restricted a lot of freedom and they're extremely competent. But this is an example, like if you restrict enough freedom, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're more efficient at carrying out government services. Yeah. How they didn't vaccinate a lot of people when they can, they have such control over the population is baffling, yeah. especially since the, the damn thing started there. Like they had a head start on this issue, but this is starting to trickle down to other aspects of the economy. And, and in some ways there are unrelated things that are happening as well in the rest of the economy. And, you know, the f first thing to point out is that the lockdowns themselves have an effect both on China, China's economy and the rest of the world economy. And it, and it kind of goes both ways. So if you start with inflation, right? Mm -hmm. This big global force that's weighing down the entire economy. These lockdowns have two kind of competing effects on inflation. In, in one respect, China's economy is cooling, therefore they're consuming less goods mm -hmm. and they do import a lot. And so that actually would drive down inflation in a way because there's less demand for goods. So, okay, maybe that's a positive. But then you have the other side, which is China produces, you know, they export more than they import. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, that means that if they're not producing as much, the supply of goods in the world goes down, which means the price of those goods goes up. And so you have kind of competing forces here. And 
you know, in the end, because of their net exports, I think it's going to wind up driving inflation more than it's going to be solving inflation. But you have all sorts of other issues. You have millions of new graduates struggling to find jobs. There's a great May 1st Wall Street Journal article that goes through this. They also talk about all these different data points, whether it's purchasing manager indexes um, at their lowest level since the pandemic began, cement production is less than 40% full capacity, shipments of smartphones dropped 18%, excavator sales within China were down 61%. And more worrisome than anything else is that you have this nexus of young people entering the workforce and migrant laborers, and all the data, you could read about it in this article, are pointing in the direction of a lot of people without jobs, and that's growing. And when you see that, that's a recipe for unrest, especially in a country that's as restrictive, incompetent, and in some ways evil as China is. And so I think this is a powder keg, not only for domestically for China, but for the world economy as well. Yeah, it's a strong statement to say China's evil, but... Um, I mean, they are committing what many people think is a genocide in Xinjiang province, you know, and they have the ability and have shown a willingness to imprison and in some cases execute huge numbers of their own people without any due process. So in my sense, that that to me qualifies as evil. It does. Yeah, and a lot of experts um, suggest that public discontent is probably at levels that it hasn't been for like 30 years, which goes back to like the Tiananmen days. So this is really impacting the populace too, and I'll be interesting to see how that plays out when you talk about uh deleveraging their economy what, what what does that entail it's kind of similar to us but with different mechanisms right like we're kind of deleveraging too like with mm-hmm. the fed yesterday raising interest rates yep. basically what you want to say is like when when it's overheated right and their version of overheated is different than ours but there are certain similarities like there there is a, a, a massive increase in in property value mm-hmm. uh and all sorts of issues of ownership home ownership in china that you know they have their own version of it but essentially china looked at its economy and was like all right capital is too cheap and that has it's having all these effects that are overheating the economy kind of like with here you know where it's like increasing the cost of goods and that has its own issues and so the question will be like they're deleveraging us is deleveraging are are either of them going to reverse course if uh, a recession happens and are they going to do it too soon triggering you know economic chaos is something we just need to watch out for well the united states is on the brink of a recession Europe is on the brink of a recession, given all the things going on with Russia. If 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 United States, Europe, and China all go into recession at the same time, is that like the perfect storm for like a a, a Great Depression type event that could possibly happen globally? Yeah, I and, and recession technically is two quarters of contraction, which a lot of people are saying is not on the horizon of China, just because mm-hmm. they 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 basically are going to grow for the. I mean, if they start contracting, we're talking about something like meaning like they have negative growth. Mm-hmm. That would be jaw dropping basically what's happening is their growth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. over time and so they won't have a technical recession but a lot of people have different words for this uh like a growth recession is what some people use Mm -hmm. to describe it Uh, essentially it will it will have the same nature as a recession Mm because it's kind of an arbitrary cutoff now the rest of us could have an actual recession we now have had one quarter of bad gdp uh, growth in the u.s or, or gdp loss in the u.s and so we're we're close here yeah uh but in the end we may be technically in a recession. They may be in a growth recession. It could be even worse for them because some of these forces that we described. But we're all in this together. That's what happens with this global economy. And so we're all going to struggle. Absolutely. 
Now for a quick update on a story we did a few weeks ago. Mental health startup Cerebral is pausing all new Adderall prescriptions after a series of exposés accused them of overprescribing the medication. Ricky, bring us up to speed on what's happening with this company this week. So a few weeks back, we discussed how essentially nurses were becoming whistleblowers, saying that they were asked to prescribe or pressured to prescribe tons of um, new prescriptions to a lot of young people, especially um, for Adderall and other very controlled substances for ADHD. We also discussed um, issues with TikTok advertising and like very broad self-diagnoses that they were kind of pushing on people. Um, and then also there's a new lawsuit from Cerebral from an ex-executive who says that he was kind of ringing the alarm bells about this and was fired in retribution. And so as a result, both Truepill and Cerebral are halting prescriptions for Adderall and other controlled substances for ADHD, quote, out of an abundance of caution. Um, and they're reviewing their practices to make sure that everything is safe but ultimately i think this is a really great case of media pressure and also an executive speaking out that just really made a difference and something that was potentially predatory towards especially young people yeah this seems like a, this a welcome development like you know that was a super depressing story that we did a little while ago and and, and shout out to you know members of our team who, who really pushed us to to cover that story and it was it's kind of this thing hiding in plain sight like yeah. mm -hmm. i don't think a lot of people talking about it yeah but there are people who do genuinely have adhd and do need access to this medication but including one of our listeners who sent us a very thoughtful note that yeah. we read one on one of the yes, shows yeah. yes but obviously we don't want people who who don't really have adhd getting prescribed it for you know other reasons so or reasons unrelated to anything that they actually have. So uh, we'll keep an eye out on that story. Uh, speaking of mental health, there is more and more data to support something many of us already know. American teenagers are undergoing a mental health crisis. 44% of teens these days say they feel persistently sad or hopeless, and roughly one in five say they've contemplated suicide. Both of these figures are sharply up over the last decade, according to the CDC. It's all forcing parents, educators, and teens themselves, and really everyone, to ask what exactly is causing this and what can be done. Ricky, I know this is an issue that you care a lot about and you've done a lot of research on. Mm -hmm. Where should we start to look at when we're talking about this crisis? Well, I think the best, most comprehensive data to look at is from the CDC, their survey of a representative sample of high school students, which, as you said, found 44% are consistently feeling sad. Shockingly, 20% seriously considered attempting suicide in 2021, and apparently 9% did, which is like almost an inconceivable number to they me. They attempted suicide. Yeah. Attempted. Wow. And there are group disparities. Girls are roughly twice as likely to report mental health issues. They're twice as likely to be suicidal. In fact, one in four girls report that they are or had been over the year. Um, and over time, as you said, this is getting worse and worse and worse. In 2009, it was roughly one in four saying they were feeling persistently sad. By 2019, it was one in three. And then just two years later in 2021, it was one in two, which obviously the pandemic is a factor in. And group disparities still persist, but as a whole, essentially every demographic has gone up in a staggering sense. And Ricky, you are you were a teenage girl not too long ago, but you're also an expert on this. You've been, you're co-authoring a book that at least this has one of its central subjects. Walk us through some of the theories as to why this is the case and, and which of those theories you find most compelling. Well, so the most obvious one to me is the pandemic with what happened over yep. the past couple of years. But regardless, that just exacerbated a problem that was already Right, to be place. clear, it was happening before. It, it was happening have, it before have, and it definitely accelerated. Enhanced it, yeah. And I think there, I mean, there are a variety of theories. Um, one is that young people just aren't getting outside and like engaging in healthy social interaction. And the CDC study 
found that kids that felt plugged into their community were considerably doing better, which of course the pandemic just pulled the plug on for them. Um, and then there's also I, what I think is the most compelling theory, which is that social media is largely behind this, or at least the, the habits that surround social media use, especially for young girls. Um, and John Haidt, who um, is a friend of mine, went on Joe Rogan's podcast to discuss how concerning this data is. The rate for the youngest girls, check that out. Now the youngest girls, these are 10 to 14 year old girls. These are preteens, okay? They didn't used to cut themselves. They used to have very low rates, but bang, beginning in 2010, it shoots up, it's up 189%. It has nearly tripled in the last five or six years. What's the cause? We don't know for sure, but the reason why, so because of the huge sex difference, the leading candidate and the timing, look at that timing, is social media. And so just to give a more updated figure on those statistics, comparing 2018 to the average between 2001 and 2010, which is pre-social media, suicide attempts for girls aged 10 to 14 were up 191%, which is just unprecedented. The rate is just completely hiked. And I think really the most obvious thing to point to is social media hyperconnectivity. Um, and there were previous theories that it was just screen time in general. But when you really kind of uh, separate out the different data, girls who are spending time specifically on social media is where we're seeing this enormous skyrocketing of of depression and suicide. And a lot of people say, oh, like maybe it's just we're more positive about, about mental health and talking about it in general. But if that were the case, you would not expect to see a similar rise in suicide and self-harm. There are actual outcomes that are getting worse as well. And you, you know, there's this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, that, that Jonathan Haidt is a co-author of, that presents another theory on top of this, and it's related to social media, which is like when, when students are on social media, there's something they're not doing, which is being in person with each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. And social media is is kind of keeping people away from each other in some ways because it gives them another way to interact without having to see each other in person. But they also talk about protective parenting. Mm -hmm. And I know others like Derek Thompson and Jean Twenge, is that how we say it? Yeah. Um, Jean Twenge in The Atlantic have both pointed to, and this is Thompson's quote, he says, over time, this protective parenting style deprives children of the emotional resilience they need to handle the world's stresses. Childhood becomes more insular and then he goes on to talk about you don't mm -hmm. see your friends as much, et cetera. And Twangy presents data on that, basically showing that yeah. the more in-person time you have with your friends, the better off you are. The more time you spend on social media, the worse off you are. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like we have a confluence of forces that are kind of yeah. like in many ways catalytic with each other. Definitely. And Kate Julian and Lenore Skenazy are other people who've discussed this specifically. And one of the really amazing um, outcomes that they found in treating anxious young children is that treating their parents for anxiety is often a solution for the children because yeah, we have, we're that. very, very anxious, um, like kind of bubble wrapping our kids and not allowing them to, to make mistakes and to fumble and to play. And so, you know, Gen Z was definitely raised that way. And then even further driven indoors when social media became the safer thing or just giving your kid an iPad or just letting them be on social media rather than out partying tonight, right. because that's less dangerous, but ultimately, I think it's really stunting emotional growth for people as well. Yeah, and I just wonder how much politics plays a part of it, because I remember back in like 2010, 2011, when Facebook and Twitter and these things started really, I mean, Facebook was taken off before that, but when it really started taking off and everybody, including your aunts and uncles, were on Facebook, which mm -hmm. kind of like ruined it. We didn't really like that as young people. But, uh, <laughs> and now but that's we, the only reason to go on Facebook. That's the only people that are on Facebook, <laughs> yeah, right? But back then, when we started seeing everybody get on Facebook, originally, it, it wasn't that toxic. It kind of depends yeah. on who 
your friend group was, but it wasn't that toxic. But it seemed like after like 14, 15, 16, it really started like a lot of political content, yeah. ideological mm-hmm. content really just started flooding uh, those social sites. And, and I feel like that really contributes to the depression about all of this. Yeah. Well, and Ricky, there's also a, and I know that this is like very sensitive, but there is a little bit of a political correlation to it. It's not just female teens, mm-hmm. but it is female teens, but there is an even stronger data point when you start to break it down by ideology, right? Yeah, so essentially, um, when you parse out specific demographic groups, the issues of mental health become way more staggering. Um, And this is from 2020, a Pew survey, when they asked young respondents, has a doctor or healthcare provider ever told you that you have a mental health condition? And they they spread it out for conservatives, moderates, and liberals, men versus women, and essentially, younger people tend to be more likely to say yes. Yeah. But when, as a whole, conservatives and moderates, it's just kind of like a slight increase in younger people. And as they get older, that that's less and less likely. That's probably down to societal change and acceptance around mental health. But then if you look at conservatives and moderates, they're virtually identical. And then liberal young women are just off the charts. It's more than half of them. And this is specifically, one caveat is this is specifically white women. The The patterns do not hold in other demographics. This is liberal white women. And I'm not going to do too much editorializing on this. And I think that this is room Careful. for a lot of people. No, <laughs> <laughs> this is room for a lot of people to dunk on on an ideology, but I think this is really, really concerning. Wait, it's like concerning is and the right word. Like, I think it's like, obviously we want to get to the root of yeah, this. Yeah, right? and analyzing this is specifically out of concern because when you have a specific demographic in which more than half of people are reporting mental health issues, there's something strange happening. And so I'll cite John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in their analysis of this. They said, we have argued that the embrace of safetyism and the untruths, which is, you know, us versus them mentality, the feeling that what doesn't hurt you makes you weaker, sort of anti-anti-fragility, like kind of embracing that that you need safe spaces and trigger warnings. Almost like a fetishizing of the fragility. Is yeah, a, is I mean, I don't know if I'd use that word, but yeah, <laughs> an embrace of the fragility. Yeah, um, so we yeah. have argued that the embrace of safetyism and, and the untruths causes anxiety and depression by making young people embrace the labels of identity and victimhood. They come to believe that the world is far more hostile, dangerous, uncontrollable, and often hopeless than it really is. That mindset about society, especially the external locus of control, has profound individual consequences. Right. And you know, part of it might just be that there's a a world on social media in which every like the world is ending every right is under siege the 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 climate is going to kill us all and like i mean i'm not downplaying any of these concerns but there's i can see how coming up in an age where you're plugged in on social media with all this really worst case scenario stuff constantly coming at you because that's just the nature of our media you know and it's it's in your phone it's not just on tv and you're yeah. a kid and you're consuming this constantly like no wonder you're going to be miserable because where's the hope i guess yeah it's a very valid point well we want to thank you all for listening to our podcast today make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel and when you're listening to the podcast make sure to rate review and subscribe we will see you guys next time